And welcome back to the big kickoff on Liffey Sound 96.4 FM. You might be listening in on TuneIn Radio, hopefully. If you're listening on the podcast, well, obviously you can pause it at any time you want and go get that cup of tea that you desperately need. In the studio this morning, we are blessed with greatness, with success in at- athletics with Dervil O'Rourke, to major titles in hurling with Tipperary and Wexford, and leaving his footprint on rugby and with football in Ireland, Jim Kilty is truly one of the greatest coaches Ireland has ever had to look to be graced with. To talk all things sport and to throw a few memories into the mix, and being the gentleman he is, Jim has joined us this morning. Jim, welcome to the big kickoff. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Roy. No problem. Listen, uh, it's it's been it's really hard to know, and I've thought about this where to start this interview. All right, uh, you, such an impressive record, and I think. We'll go through a lot of your highlights in a moment, but can you tell me where your love, and this going back a few years now, Jim, when did your love of sport first begin? Well, if you talk to my brothers and sisters, when I was about 12, I got his shears and out the back, I cut a running track and they were from two to 10 and I had them running around breaking records and I used to time them with the old alarm clock. Yeah. And, uh, so even at that stage, uh, I remember at about the age of 11, winning the 200 metres in Park Talton, a school 200 metres. And um, I just felt that athletics was going to be my sport. Now, I was lucky enough, I played uh, Gaelic football, uh, street leagues in Navan, and I remember starting in second class, but when I got to my final class, which was seventh class, which was the scholarship class, uh, I eventually, my team, Flower Hill, won. But we were blessed to have the presence of Eamon Giles, who is Ronan, um, Trevor Giles' father. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was one of those country boys and he could have been put on any team. So after five years of trying to win uh, the street leagues, which would be two hurling, two football every year, I eventually won it uh, the last year. And I remember being asked to wait for the medal I had been waiting, with, waiting for for five years. And the De La Salle brother just threw a big packet of hurleys out and he says, we're going to give you the hurley instead of a medal this year. <laughs> and it was the biggest disappointment in my life. <laughs> Okay. The, the oldest trick in the book, get them in. <laughs> huh? I mentioned this to a lot of people, and when we put it out there about the, the show and the gym you were coming on, I got a lot of people who praised you and uh, and your personality. A lot of people talked about how how great it was to be in your company, how it was to, to feed off you. I was talking to Joe McGrath, uh, football and he told me to say hello to you yeah how is Joe Joe was great Joe was great we're going to get him on he'll, Good. he'll tell a few stories and you'll, you'll have to get a number for him because we're due a cup of coffee I'll, get, I'll, I'll give you the number straight <laughs> after the show no, absolutely okay. no problem uh, Al McGovern was up in, in, in uh, he used to work with the FAI and, and again all praise for you but what people or coaches um, have you learned most from uh, well Kieran Coakley was a sprinter I coached, <clears throat> but he was also a PE teacher and he had a very deep knowledge of speed. Right. Uh, like when I started coaching first, I was a middle distance coach. I joined Dublin City Harriers when I came to Dublin in 1974, but they had very little uh, sprinting uh, coaching in the club. So Kieran asked me to help him out with uh, coach it himself 
he was a very talented sprinter and the next year he eventually equaled the Irish record of 10.5 and uh, which was hand timed at the time and he won his first and only national championship I think in 76 but uh, that's where I started and I started working with a group of sprinters and a group of distance runners and we were very very success successful over the following number of years yeah. and uh, we built up a great tradition in Dublin City Harriers with the likes of Dermot Nagel but another man who influenced me a lot was Dr Liam Hennessy uh, the owner of Satanta College and uh, he introduced me to someone like Dietmar Schmidt-Bleicher who is a professor of sports science who kind of works in the area of speed and strength in the area of power development and I also met a very interesting Italian guy in the same area his name was Carmelo Bosco poor Carmelo died about six seven years ago from brain cancer but he was a genius in fact he was the first man who began to test for speed since 1924 they've been testing for stamina and VO2 max and all of these things but Bosco in 1993 was the first man to realise that a standing long jump or a counter movement jump could predict your ability at speed. So that's where I kind of began to get interested in the 90s in the whole area of speed. Yeah. And uh, it, I kind of took it from there. But Kieran Coakley, Liam Hennessy, Smith Bleicher, these would be kind of the influences that I've worked on and who, uh, that have helped me develop my ideas on training and training for, particularly for field sports. A, 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 would I be right, a partnership with, with Liam developed over the years? Then? Oh, it did, yeah. It developed over the years and uh, we did a lot of kind of research and testing, but we never published really. Yeah. Uh, we only published one article, which was on the stretch shortening cycle, the difference between the long stretch shortening cycle and the short stretch shortening cycle, uh, which is more or less plyometrics. Yeah. But we have this kind of mechanical energy in the body where if we contract uh, a muscle and then release it, you get a greater force than if you just normally release the energy. Yeah. And um, that was the only one we ever published. But we did a lot of work together and this kind of formulated my ideas on speed and above all on the ability to repeat speed. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm one of these guys who think that there's very little stamina in soccer. Yeah, yeah. Because I, 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 I obviously did a bit of reading up and... Um, I'm a neuromuscular therapist myself, so oh. so obviously this, the neuromuscular system that you would be talking about in, in general rather than the, the, the cardiovascular and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, like a lot of people think that it's the cardiovascular system. There's this type of training called the mass system of training, maximum aerobic system of training. And it's taken a grip on all the soccer teams in, Amer in, in England. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And really when you look at it, Sometimes a team wins by a goal and that one goal could be a pass from a guy who's standing still and he just splits the defence yeah. because he sees the run. And here are we going on developing cardiovascular uh, intensity and, va and vas uh, cardiovascular endurance, etc. And really, 
it's decision making at the right time uh, in the right place with yeah. the right ball and being able to constantly uh, repeat the tackles and the speed and the jumps and the explosiveness yeah. throughout a game. So my top end speed or my theory on top end speed for Gaelic hockey, soccer, rugby is what I call speed repeatability. The ability to repeat skill, effort and speed irregularly but consistently irregularly yeah. throughout a game. Yeah, yeah. We won't go too much into that just yet because <laughs> I, I want to get there. Yeah. But I want to get around where you came from. So you, you're, you're a former athletics director of coaching for 10 years, yeah. uh, track and field coach at the 98 Seoul Olympics, the 2006 Atlanta Olympics. So how did that come about and what changes do you, did you implement straight away? Well, first of all, I was a teacher, yeah. I, a primary school teacher. And um, when the Fianna Fáil government, oh, I forget what year, around in the late 80s they were looking to introduce uh, professional coaches into sport and Frank Fahey of Galway was the junior minister for sport yeah. and he spoke with myself and he asked me would I become the first uh, full-time coach and become the director of coaching in Athletics Ireland and we tried to join up Dr. Oriwell, uh, Svignev Oriwell, who was a Polish athlete and a, po a very talented Polish coach, came to Ireland in charge of the NSCA. And at that stage, there was a kind of a split in Irish athletics, the NSCA and BLE. And then we had the schools and all operating independently. So the government tried to bring all that together, which eventually led in many ways to the formation of Athletics Ireland. Right. But I got into it as my first job in Athletics Ireland was the national coach for four and hundred eight and eight hundred meters because we hadn't anyone breaking forty nine seconds for the four hundred, right. and we were finding it hard to break one fifty for the eight hundred. So I took that job on uh, under Robin Sykes, uh, who was the director of coaching at the time uh, from from Wales, but. Um, I kind of made a success of that and when Robin retired I was then offered the job of Director of Coaching and I took that on on a voluntary basis and then in 1990 I became full-time. Okay. You know? And what, what did you implement first straight off? What was it that you see? Well, the first thing I felt was that we needed to increase coach education. So I worked very hard on developing foundation level one, level two and at the time we were the first Federation to provide a level three coaching course all within a number of years and um, this was based on the National Training Centre down in Limerick. They developed what was called the NCDP, the National Coaching Development Programme right. and they had six people from outside and six people from academia and I remember Joe McGrath represented soccer. I yeah. was with athletics um, the guy who's now working in Italy, uh, Stephen Abood represented rugby, Pat Daly represented um, uh, GAA, and then there was two other outsiders. And we were part of the group that worked on the National Coaching Development Programme, and we produced it around 1996, I would say around that time. And all the federations then kind of rode in behind that programme. And it was up to me then to implement that programme in athletics, and that's what I, I did at that time. Okay. Now, 
one of the things I did notice was that we were lacking in the whole area of explosiveness. Right. And at that time, at that time, Terry McHugh was developing as a great javelin thrower. Uh, uh, Sweeney uh, was developing as a brilliant discus thrower, uh, Niall Sweeney. So they had the technique. Yeah, they had, they had the, the technique, but they needed to develop power and explosiveness. TJ Kearns, uh, Patricia Amund, Michelle, um, Michelle Walsh and all these, they were all around in the 80s, but we were kind of treating them as kind of little middle distance runners. Yeah. And we were doing stamina during the winter and then beginning to do the speed. And Kieran Coakley was kept preaching with me was that he would, we need to do speed all the year round. And so one of my first things as director of coaching with Lake was to appoint Kieran as the national sprints coach. And that was a real big red flag day for okay, Irish so athletics because sprinting has now taken almost as many medals in the last number of years as the middle distance tradition we've had. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, like we've been very lucky with Paul McKee. Um, like we've had many, many medals, particularly in the 400. But we've also had Derville. We've also had TJ Kearns. So, uh, Sean Cal, some great sprinters and sprint hurdlers as well as just 400 meter runners. So Kieran Coakley, I feel, was one of the people who got that tradition started because he convinced me of what was needed. Yeah. So what I did then was I started bringing in for weekends coaches from Germany and Britain. For instance, Bruce Longden, who coached Sally Gunnell to win the 400 meters gold medal in Barcelona. He used to come over October, November, December for a weekend and I'd bring the best 50 or 60 sprints, hurdles, athletes down for the weekend to Nina. And that was a brilliant track, thanks to Sean Norton and the crowd down in Nina. But without that, with that we, I don't think we'd have progressed. Yeah. And obviously the building of the indoor facility in Santry was the next step forward because it meant we could train all year round outside of being in the wet and the, the rain. But... Um, so I also brought, brought in some coaches from Germany and we brought in the guy who was in, ch in charge of coach education of all the sprinters in Germany and he came in five or six times. And not only would I bring 50 or 60 athletes down, I also targeted 10 coaches. Right. And I made sure that they worked with Kiran when these coaches came in, that there'd be a lecture for the coaches, etc. And I feel kind of in the early, late 80s, early 90s, that's how we got a kind of the grip on how to coach sprints. That was the foundation. That for was it. the foundation for it all, yeah. So obviously you mentioned Derville. Yeah. And how, how did you start working with Derville? And again, what did you instantly see in her that you could instantly change? Um, Derville was unlucky in the sense that she was in Cork when I started working with her first and she had a very good coach down there John Sheehan but she had never done weights and you really like speed is when I was a young coach speed was defined as stride length by stride frequency so if you could take three strides in a second and you were eight feet in a stride or seven feet, yeah. three by seven, your speed was 21 feet per second Right. and you either had to increase your stride length or increase the number of steps you took per second if you wanted to get faster. Yeah. Now, one was power and the other was uh, the, your nervous system. 
But if you overdo the stride length, you lose out on the, 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 stride, the stride rate. So you have to be careful. But later on, I came across a better definition of speed, and that was the power you can exert on the ground at foot contact and how long it takes to exert that force. Right. So that tells you what to train. So you can increase the power in the weight room, then afterwards with the plyometrics, etc. And you have to work on the nervous system. The problem for Derville when she came first to me was you can't increase stride length because you have to take three strides. Like her race is, 40, is 42 steps and yeah. you can't shorten it. Yes. So here was I trying to develop a very talented young lady with one hand tied behind my yeah, back. Yeah. In the sense we had to work on her nervous system and on her technique. Now a lady from America that I met called Emily Foster, she was one of those people who could almost evaluate movement by looking at someone. Yeah. She didn't need the computers and things like that. And she noticed that Derville, when she pushed off the foot off the ground, her driving foot, that she turned her foot out. And as a result, when you turn your foot out, a greater proportion of your foot touches the ground, which means you're spending too long a time on the ground. So one of the things she did was to develop her glute muscles, uh, make the piriformis on her takeoff side much more flexible so that she could drive straight at the hurdle. And this, I think, was one of the things that led to that. Okay. And I remember Derville ran the under-23s championships and Emily Foster was over in Ireland and I brought her down to shore the Rocket Cashel because we were going down to Cork for something or other. Oh, yeah, we were, the next day we were meeting the Munster rugby team. And um, we were up on top of the Rocket Cashel when I get this phone call from Derville. She was so excited. She had broken 13 seconds for the first time, but she only finished fourth. Right. And she twisted her ankle. And it was three weeks before the Athens Olympic Games. So when she came home, she slept downstairs in my house, set her alarm for 90, every 90 minutes, and she got up and put her ankle in ice water. I didn't know. Yeah. So that through the night to get the swelling down. Yeah. Now she actually ran in that Olympic Games in Athens, disastrously, very poorly, shall we say? It was yeah. a disaster. Yeah. But I wanted her to go there, so that she would get the concept of the Olympic Games and World Championships out of her system. Yeah, it's experience. It's experience, so that the next time she went, she would go kind of to win. Yeah. Now I remember in. Um, 2006 we were in Portugal and she was almost in tears that she couldn't get over the hurdle correctly her ability and I remember putting this little plastic hurdle down on front of the long jump pit and she running up and jumping over it and trying to get a full kind of good stride over it and things like so that she would drive at it and um, but anyway around the first Tuesday in February Derva was very lucky. She had a great training companion in Kira Sheehy. Yeah. Kira was a very talented athlete. A great 200-metre runner. Ran 23.02 in Bluefontaine in South Africa. A very, very good run. And she um, 
because of that, they were able to train together. But I remember we used to do, every now and then, they would get three attempts at a standing long jump into the long jump pit. And they'd be jumping about 240. Derville would 242, Kira 246, that type of distance. But that Tuesday, Kira jumped 262. So Derville's turn was next, and she jumped 268. Oh, wow. So I remember saying to her driving home, she used, lived in a house across the road from Santry. She bought a house there, and, uh, or she was thinking of buying a house there. So I said to her, get rid of your phone, change your number. And I'll take all phones. And she says, why? I says, because you're going to win a medal in Moscow three weeks later. Now, I didn't think it would be gold. But she had run uh, 7.92. And uh, she went over to Moscow and ran 7.84. But one of the things I thought that helped Derville win that gold medal was the fact that I wasn't there or no one was there, no coach was there who knew much about hurdles. Okay. And sometimes... Because you, 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 you weren't there. Yeah, I wasn't there. Where no. were you? I was with Wexford team down playing Offaly in Burr on a wet day. <laughs> and I rushed in to try and get the, the thing on television to find that it wasn't on television because the hotel down in Burr opposite the pitch was renovating. Oh, no. And they only had one TV screen and I was watching soccer. <laughs> so I had to run into the car and I listened to it. And I remember... Um, Listen to the race. I was so thrilled to listen to um, um, my friend, uh, oh, Greg Allen. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to coach Greg in the 800 metres. So I walked in anyway to the hotel, so proud as punch. And just as I walked into the, to the room, it was very odd. The two teams were actually sitting down and eating dinner together. And um, there was a big clap. Because they had heard they had on the heard, radio yeah. that Derville had won. So I walked in, and with that, Derville rings me. And I started crying, and I was so embarrassed <laughs> in front of the Offaly and Wexford teams. But it was a great feeling, yeah, it was a great feeling. Brilliant. I'm going to go quickly to an ad break, and we'll come back. You're listening to Liffey Side on 96.4 FM. Yes, it's the big kickoff on Liffey Sound 96.4 and we have Jim Kilty in with us today. Uh, Jim is definitely not afraid to talk. <laughs> Listen, Jim, athletics, obviously huge in athletics, but you did start to dab in the, the GAA world. And was Tipperary your first jump into it? Yes, the first time I, uh, I ever trained a team, it was Tipperary 2001. And I got a phone call uh, asking me to ring Dicky English. So I... It took me nearly three weeks to eventually get Nicky. And when I did get him, he said he'd ring back. So we met in um, the Burlington Hotel and um, in December 2000. And I remember I was heading off to Poland with a group of athletes at Christmas time. And I was due back on the 10th. And Tipperary would start back on the 10th of January. So I, um, I had to change my flight. I came home on the, on the 9th. And I began training Tipperary on the 10th of January 2001. And a very interesting year that year was we played 18 games, challenges and everything. And we never lost a game. Not one. Not one. We drew with most of our B team playing against Limerick. But we won every game. We won the Munster Championship. We won the National League. 
and we won the All Ireland. So when you were when when you went in with them, and uh, I know I read a little bit about this, so I kind of know what you did. But when you went in, what was the the fundamentals that you said right? This is what we need to change. This is because it gets tactical then as well as um, as well as you're looking at your speed and agility. You're, you're thinking of the tactical aspect of of a game, and it's different, obviously, than athletics. So, when what did you change, and when did you see it develop? In the, how quickly? Well, first of all, um, very interesting. Uh, I decided that I would make about a hundred forty meter runs as my stamina okay and i would group them in runs of 10 runs and 12 runs in a set so we'd run 40 jog 20 run 40 jog and we do 10 uh, 10 runs in a set and uh, we'd get up to 15 16 sets and we'd have half time so if i was doing uh, 40 runs after 20 we'd have a 10 minute break where we'd do a bit of core a bit of uh, boxing into the tackle bags a uh, little bit of press ups and then like in the game yeah. and I remember one time getting up and we actually did about 140 runs one night in April and I never used the ball because I wasn't allowed to use the ball. Being a meat man, <laughs> you can't. I couldn't become the coach of the Tipperary team. I was only the physical trainer. But my idea was the concept of being able to repeat efforts on the field of play. Yeah. However, very interesting, we went on to win the championship that year. But when I went to Wexford, it came, I kind of got this feeling that 10 to 12 runs in a set was too many that the quality would drop. So then we started, I started doing five or six runs in a, in a set before we'd have a minute break to keep the quality of the runs between 90 and maybe 94, 95% effort. And I never went more than 100 runs in a training session for an inter-county team, 70 minutes. Yeah. But that particular year, Wexford actually beat Kilkenny in the, in the championship with that last minute goal. And I just feel that we were much sharper than Kilkenny that day. And we stayed with them all the way until there was uh, two minutes to go. And I was on the sideline giving out the water and looking after the hurls. And Adrian Fenling came over to take the sideline cut. And Adrian was well known for his ability to put them over the bar from the yeah. sideline. And all I said to Adrian was, Don't, oh yeah, we were a point behind. Don't put it over the bar. They'll beat the hell out of us the next day. <laughs> Drop it in the square. Now, I don't know if you heard me or not. Yeah. But Peter Barry caught it. And Mick Jacob blocked him down with real real good reflex. Cut the ball and put it in the back of the net. Game over. But, uh, yes, in 2001, it was a great experience to go down. Working with someone like as famous as Nicky English. Yeah. Working with the likes of John Lahey, Tommy Dunn and all those. Owen Kelly. Owen was only a young fella at that stage. He was 19. But interestingly enough, we trained twice a week and we played a challenge match or we trained at the weekend. We never did any weights. Yeah. It was pure skill. And uh, you were talking about tactics. Nicky believed everyone had to win their own ball and that's it. But isn't, isn't that a, a thing, though, with, with when you look at soccer, I hate calling it soccer, right? Uh, football. football. And you look at, say, hurling and, and Gaelic football, that especially with hurling, that they have each player nearly has their own zone you won't see a, there's no such thing as a box to box so it isn't really a, 
cardiovascular experience that it is the short and sharp that you have an area within that you're going to play with. So is that the reason why you think it was so successful? Well, possibly, but there were a good set of hurlers. Now, I met one tip man there recently and he said, Jim, I think that was the weakest team that ever won in All-Ireland. <laughs> well, that's very good. Like, that's high praise for their fitness levels, yeah, if that's yeah. the case. But I thought they were a very skillful team. But, like, in soccer, you can give a pass, or in Gaelic football, you can give a pass, and you can overlap. Yeah. Like, Leinster do it all the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sexton to, it used to be Darcy, and then he'd loop around, and then he'd give, it out, the, yeah. give it out the next guy. But, in hurling, when you strike the ball, there's no way you can overlap. No, no. Because you know, the ball's gone 50, 60 yards. So, yes, uh, I'm a great believer, as I said, in the ability to repeat speed. And the difference between hurling on one hand and Gaelic football and football on the other hand is that you can overlap in, 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 in football yes. and in Gaelic football. Yeah. And so there's a greater demand on the ability to repeat effort for a longer period of yeah. time, yeah. for five or six seconds. Rather, But this thing where you're running for kind of... 15 seconds hard, 15 seconds easy. Like, no one really has to run because if you're running properly, you'll cover the length of Crow Park in 15 seconds. Yeah. Do you know, or very close to it. So, um, I still believe in the concept of the ability to repeat skill, effort, repeat tackles, etc. Uh, but obviously, each game has its own physical demands on the player. Yeah. Yeah. And hurling is separate from football which is different from Gaelic football yeah well, I think re repetition in, in any sport is uh, is the key to success because you look at you look at football they'll do pattern plays uh, for football uh, and it's just that repeating that to know where you are to, to, to teach your mind to visually see a, a pattern movement so what you and in, in turn are doing is teaching the body to do those similar pattern movements. Yeah, well, you know, there are three stages of skill learning and one of them is where this, the skill becomes automatic. Yeah. And you only get this through the repetition of practice. Mm -hmm. So you keep doing something, you keep doing something, you keep some, doing something. Now that's skill, but if you keep doing thing, something, you get very fit at doing that thing. And that's where the physical fitness element yeah, of yeah. repetition comes in. Jim, sorry, just one one question there. Um, you you talk a lot about like um like sports science, um physical aspect of the game, stuff like that. How important is nutrition, and is it something that you've introduced in your coaching techniques and stuff like that? Yes, it is. I I think I learned more about nutrition from Deborah O'Rourke than she did from me. But I remember we sitting down and um, there be just before she won the world championship that particular winter. She decided that she was going to tackle her, her, um, her diet and her nutritional aspects. It's not something that I'm fully qualified in, but I do pay it respect and I do have my theories on it. And uh, but I also use people to send my athletes to uh, from time to time if they need some kind of program adjustment in their nutrition. You know, uh, like. 
at the end of the day, we can only burn the fuel that we have. Yeah. Now, if you put diesel into a, a petrol car, things go wrong. Go wrong. Yeah. And it's the same with the, the old engine. I often feel the body is kind of like a motor car. And the oil that keeps the, 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 the engine running, well, that's the fluid and the water we take in. But the petrol or the diesel we take in, that's, they're the carbohydrates that we take in. Now, the protein that we take in, that moves our engine from a 1.6 to a 1.8 to a 2-litre yeah, engine. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to be able to uh, maximise a kind of fluid intake, a protein and carbohydrate mix for each particular sport. Yeah. What, what does... Uh, actually... Uh, I was talking to, uh, it was Alan McGovern actually, and he told me that he's seen uh, the rugby, who were you with, Leinster was it? And I was with Leinster. Were you yeah. with the, the, the Irish set up at all? No, no, never. But he had seen, uh, they were set up a certain way that they had their breakfast, uh, I think it was heavy breakfast, they were having fries and stuff like that, and you were introduced, and the next morning, there was a lot of cereal, there was a lot of, a lot of different things that they had to get used to instantly. And he said, I called it that night. He says, that is going to change straight away. And it did. So you'll say that you don't know the nutritional side, but I think you do. And you think you are willing to implement it. Uh, listen, what frustrates you about Irish sports? Uh, like I know grants with athletics can be, uh, can be very frustrating. Um, is there anything that frustrates you? Well, first of all is overtraining really frustrates me and the abuse of the number of games young people have to play. And that just doesn't apply to Gaelic games. I yeah. know Gaelic games are in the radar of everyone at the moment, of yeah. the media, etc. But it is a serious issue. Yeah. Like I remember last year working with the Tipperary ladies and we had five or six on the panel who were still in Liebensert. And they were playing interprovincial football and trying to train with us. They were playing interprovincial and colleges football and camogie, and they were still trying to train with us. And then they'd go home and they'd play camogie and football, maybe on the same day. Yeah. Like uh, one team that I'm kind of involved with, Kappa White Ladies Football Team in Tipperary, their semi-final, which was to be in on last week, has been rescheduled. And it's on the same day that the team plays the first round ah, of the Camogie. Yeah, the yeah. exact same time and the exact same. And that club has to make a decision. Yeah. So uh, these things, really, the over kind of in use of the players. I worked with Manute Hurling there at one stage. And some of those players would be on the Dublin panel, the Kildare panel. They'd be with their clubs. And every manager wants them. Yeah. No one will say, hold on, you're training there, so that's great. Do parents have a... Uh, have a uh, are, are, do you think they're a fault for over-using, I suppose? It's great that, that kids can go to boxing, kickboxing, rugby, Gaelic football, but are they... Do they forget about the rest for their kids, do you think? Yeah, I think they forget about the rest. Now, first of all, it's, it's, see, it's seen that computer. Sorry, it's seen that computer games, etc., are are really bad for you. And if they're out doing loads of sports, it's really good for you. But surely there's a mix to everything. Yeah. Now, doing loads of sports is good, mm. but doing lo loads of competitive sports isn't that good. Yeah. Like, it's important that a child doesn't play one sport. That's my view. 
That is called early specialization. I'm a great believer in late specialization, where a child uh, learns and participates in a fun and enjoyable way in as many sports as possible, whether that's football, Gaelic football, hurling, bit of rugby, bit of boxing, little bit of martial arts. And the more activities the child does, the more motor skills they learn. Now, when that child becomes 16, 17, 18, the motor skill uh, development of the player helps him or her to be a better specialist in their own chosen sport then from 16 up to adult, into adult age. So while mixing sport is good, it's this kind of competitive streak. Now, I was giving a course down in Kildare Town on a speed academy. I have five of them planned. One of them is just finished last week. And this guy came in to me and I said to him, uh, well, who were you training with last night? I was with the soccer team. And you, his friend, I was training with the Gaelic team. And I said, oh, did the Gaelic coach not mind? Did he not want to? And he says, no, I'm training for soccer, so I'm going to be fit. Now, that's a very understanding coach. But that's the problem with our six to 14 year olds that the managers and the coaches of the various teams have to pay heed to what has been done, what the child is doing for the rest of the week. Now, I'm involved a little bit with the awfully under 15s through a good friend of mine, Liam Hogan, who's helping out down there. And they're getting all the players to fill out a little computer program to say what they're doing each day of the week. And it's absolutely frightening. The amount they're doing. The amount of things that they're doing. Again, you will find, because I will find uh, parents come in with children to me. Now, it would be at an age where the muscle is developing and stretching, so 14, 15, 16, where they're coming in with injuries and they can't understand it. Why is he injured? What's And then they'll give me the list of, of actually what they are doing during the week and there is no rest in between. And as you said, it's competitive because they want, they think that there's a chance that Billy is going to make either a great fo- football player, a great hurler, a great boxer, and they're all competitive, competitive, highly competitive. So there is no break where maybe at that age you can nearly be focused on your, your one or two sports, one competitive anyhow. Yeah, like I think a very important aspect that we had, my age group growing up, and that was that there was loads of time for free play. Yeah. And free play is just as important as organised play. And the problem for the present day child is it's very hard for him to design free play because we're limited. Like in Navan, I could get across the back wall and into a field. We could kick football and things like that. So it's limited now, especially in cities and especially in high rise flats. Like, you can't just go out and play no, football and anywhere. No, and the parents don't want them out on the yeah, road. and playing. they don't want them out there. Yeah. Like, I remember playing five-a-side outside my, my house in Flower Hill, Navan, and every ten minutes we might sh- we'd shout, L-O-B, look out behind, uh, because there was a car coming. Now, that same road is now uh, a two-way, one-way road with two lanes, yeah. and a cat wouldn't cross the road. Yeah, yeah. But, like, free play has definitely disintegrated in uh-huh. the present and as a result children have been brought to to organize sport now organize sport where fun and enjoyment and development of skill is is the, is the key or is is the main aim is brilliant but 
organised sports where everyone wants to win. Yeah. Really, that's the problem. And that is the problem. And <clears throat> again, we used to play football morning, noon and night and be dragged in to play. You know, we play, we play about six games a day, you know. Yeah. So that isn't there. And you're right. And that's self-taught is, I mean, any footballers, Gaelic footballers who, who played years ago, they were self-taught. You know, and yeah. again, that's true repetitive actions and, and yeah. figuring it out themselves. Yeah. yeah, Jim, this is absolutely killing me because I'm going to have to say goodbye and we, <laughs> we haven't even got halfway through everything we wanted to talk about. So we certainly won't leave it there. We'll definitely have you back on. Um, I want to pick your brain a lot more than we have today, but it, it's a good foundation for, for us because uh, we know a lot more about you and we know a lot more about your thought process. So... Actually, you have a, a, a website, is that correct? That's right. I, I, I run a, a Premier Sports College, www.premiersportscollege.com. And my main course there is a strength and conditioning course where the aim is that you don't miss training, you do everything at home, even the, the video um, lectures are online. And uh, however, I've introduced something new there recently, which is strength and conditioning for the juveniles up to under 12. Brilliant. Now, it should never have been called strength and conditioning, but that's how I introduced it because it should be all about what's called athletic or multilateral development, yeah. where we develop the child and the multifacets of that child. And then at 12, we present to football, to Gaelic football, to rugby, a fabulous athlete who can really develop the skills. Now, you can still use football or Gaelic football or hurling yep. as the medium from six, seven, eight, nine, ten. but the emphasis should be on the child development. And that's a very interesting kind of series of courses. I get a lot of uh, students coming in, even from the likes of America and places like that, doing the courses. But my overall aim is to make it as cheap as it can possibly be and get out the information. Uh no doubt get onto that website because no doubt there's it's uh, full of information that will benefit every athlete okay listen jim thanks very much for your time and uh, we'll take a break <laughs> 